What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Chris Fawson. He's an economics professor at Utah State University, and he's the executive director of Partners in Business. People that are frustrated with the profit motive don't understand that every organization, in order to have a sustained commitment to its organizational mission and objectives, has to have revenue exceeds costs, or there's nothing sustainable there. And that is true for nonprofits as it is for profits. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Chris, thanks for making time. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Jess. Well, um, we've been getting to know each other over the last year and some, and um, I, I'm glad that you've got time to get on the show here. Uh, for everybody who doesn't know about the Huntsman School, um, can you A, talk about who John Huntsman Sr. is, not the guy who was running for president a few years back, and uh, some of the highlights that maybe people don't know about Utah State? Sure. Uh, John Huntsman Sr. is uh, the person that the school is named after been very successful in his business career, uh, very successful in uh, public service, uh, but he's also considered a great humanitarian. His uh, primary focus has really been on trying to eradicate cancer. Uh, he started the Huntsman Cancer Institute based out of Salt Lake City, um, but he's a humanitarian in a much broader context than just cancer. And a few years ago, he was looking for opportunities to help uh, Utah State University's business school uh, increase their capacity to more effectively serve their students and open opportunities for those students by co-branding, uh, bringing the co-brand of the Huntsman uh, legacy to Utah State University and naming the business school. And it's been something that has been significant for 
not just how others view what we're doing in the Huntsman School, but it changes the mindset of the students that go here. I, I'm a firm believer that the names that we choose to associate ourselves with have an influence on how we think and how we act. And I think having uh, the name of John Huntsman attached to the Huntsman School has helped us uh, better understand what we're capable of doing and challenging us to be better every day and giving the students a clear um, role model for uh, living a fulfilling and purposeful, purpose-filled life. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of the things that I want to talk about. I know we were talking for a minute before the show, but um, you know, certainly he's one of the more well-known billionaires in the region out here. And, and I think there's a lot of folks that could understand why someone looking to grow or run a business would want to learn from principles from someone with that level of success. But uh, I think that your emphasis there on the, you know, what he's done with the wealth he's created is at least as important. Um, and uh, do you mind talking a little bit? I know um, we found out just before the show that, you know, my uncle Malcolm Richards from uh, Texas A&M when you got your PhD back out there. Yes. Um, but uh you were really impressed with him you brought up and we, ha- we haven't talked about this yet. And I- I'd be interested to know what it was that was impressive about him to you or what you uh, yeah. remember from him. Uh, one of the things that um, I remember is that um, in addition to being a great professor, he was loved and respected by his colleagues and his students, uh, but he was always seen as a leader in the business school. Uh, he took on significant leadership roles. Um, he's a man of integrity. I think people uh, look to Malcolm as somebody that uh, they could aspire to be more like. Um, he's he's a man who has a significant physical presence. Because uh, yeah, he's like six him. foot nine or something. Exactly. So uh, in that in that sense, uh, you know, he's he's a person that uh, when you meet Malcolm. He, uh, he's not a person that's easy to ignore, but uh, it goes much more beyond just his physical presence. He was, as I said, a man of character who was widely respected uh, among his colleagues and uh, students. You know, I know that was a bit of a wild card question. And <laughs> as soon as I asked it, I thought, I hope he had a good impression. <laughs> yeah. um, but when you talked about him before we thought, before we started, I thought, you know, I got to get him on the show and come talk about going over to the Middle East and running those business schools in Abu Dhabi and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the other interesting things was your, this fellowship uh, sabbatical you took with, with the Koch Foundation. Um, and I feel like it really ties into this idea of, um, you know, capitalism can be a benefit to society and it doesn't need to have these negative associations that sometimes people put on it of selfishness or things like this. Um, can you talk about what, what the, what the fellowship was, what the sabbatical was? Sure. So first off, maybe for some of your listeners, they may not be familiar with sabbaticals, but, uh, or, or, uh, university professors that, uh, have tenure at an institution uh, they're able to take a leave of absence from that institution for a short period of time. And they might visit a research institute or visit with colleagues around the country working on research projects. But uh, I had spent a few years uh, trying to focus on more effective uh, mentoring and teaching of students and had a couple of students who were 
uh, working for the Koch Foundation based out of Arlington, Virginia. And through a series of conversations, they invited me to come out and spend a year with them and take a leave of absence from Utah State University to do that, uh, which I did. And the foundation has spent many years cultivating a strong network of uh, academics in the area of economics and political science, history and philosophy. But they had a very loose understanding of how business school networks worked. And so the project that I was working on was helping the foundation more effectively understand how to bring business professors into a conversation about the moral foundations of capitalism. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, capitalism uh, has proven to be the most effective way to unleash human capacity for creative engagement with other fellow human beings in a voluntary way. And we see that empirically throughout the world that systems that are have embraced capitalism tend to also embrace democracy. They tend to unleash the human spirit to bring creative ideas to the marketplace. Uh, they're able to bring resources to bear in support of uh, humanitarian efforts and charitable efforts that would not exist otherwise without that excess capacity that is generated through the voluntary exchange at the foundation of capitalism. So we spent basically that year thinking through uh, how we encourage business faculty members to more effectively embrace the moral foundations of capitalism. I spent a lot of time reading uh, while I was back there and trying to educate myself uh, to be a more sophisticated uh, consumer of the kind of things that academics have been writing about and talking about with regards to capitalism. So uh, that was basically the, the focus of the year. I, I'm not, uh, I would not say I was very effective in doing it. I think it's a, it's a grand challenge to try and help people understand how the systems they operate in uh, can be more effective in unleashing what, what they really value, which I think at a very basic level, um, virtually all humans uh, are interested in living in happy, healthy, flourishing communities and being associated with people that sustain and support that kind of institutional structure. But it's hard. Yeah. You know, I really like the differentiation between self-interest and selfishness. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's very easy for folks from the outside to look at um, the worst offenders, those who've given into temptation, who who have come from the capitalist side and to, to paint the whole system with that brush. Right. And, you know, growing up in Canada, <laughs> a lot more of the socialists, I'll tell you, capitalism has no, uh, no monopoly on selfishness. Right. 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 But, um, but, but the, the missteps are certainly very public, you know, right. with such a liberal media uh, in general, um, they, they certainly stay on the front page for a while. Um, but yet when you and I were talking earlier, you talked about how, uh, the the need or the desire to provide for not only ourselves but those we care about and the causes we care about, as you were talking about with with John Huntsman. Um, personally, I feel like that's a major driver in some of the progress that that I've witnessed. Um, 
you know, you look at some of the folks on our show, like Lindsay Knuven from Code Epoxy and, and the way they've structurally set up their business to do that, or just the other guests like Amy Stellhorn from Big Monocle or Chad Lott from Whole Foods, who, who have helped our charity Child Rescue. And I think about one of my mentors, he um, has, has quite a large business on a couple of different contents continents who claims that he has a uh, a for purpose business instead of for profit right, right. and uh, he just one of the things that his internal accountant told the whole team one day really stuck with me he said they were kind of whining about something and this was happening and and they were they were saying well it can't be all about the money and he's like yeah no kidding it can't be all about the money but then his uh his accountant came in cfo and she just said listen people no money no mission yeah like if we don't have any money, we can't provide on this mission. So like, it's okay to make money. That's how we're going to, that's how we're going to deliver, <laughs> deliver on our, our benefit mission. Um, and uh, I think that because there have been those in history that have maybe used good purposes and then it's been a bait and switch, there's, there's sometimes um, a little hesitancy. Um, but uh, anyways, I really look up to the people that can embrace that in a full, yeah. in a full way. Well, I think, I mean, my sense is that people that are frustrated with a profit motive don't understand that every organization, in order to have a sustained commitment to its organizational mission and objectives, has to have revenue exceeds costs or there's nothing sustainable there. And that is true for nonprofits as it is for profits. And it's as true for government as it is for non-governmental entities. You have to bring in at least as much money as you spend or you're not sustainable in the long run. And uh, I look at for-profit businesses and the variations of those that exist and try and encourage people to think about the fact that you want to be in a system that generates as much uh, excess of revenue over cost as possible so that the people affiliated with that organization can then indulge their capacity to make a difference in the lives of others. And of course, you know, we can look around and see lots of selfish behavior in the world. I don't care what kind of system you're in, whether it's a capitalist system or it's a command and control system, that does not change the nature of human beings. We will always have selfish human beings among us but we would like to be in a system that creates as much uh, excess value as we can so that we can unleash that among good-hearted people who I, I believe are the majority of people that are really interested in supporting um, improvements in the well-being of their fellow human beings and, and those that share this planet with us. Sure. Um, when you think about, uh, when you think about not only this philosophy, but other principles of business, um, you know, you've had a lot of students over the years thinking about ones that went on to become entrepreneurs. Are there, are there things um, amongst the successful ones that, that you think you noticed as they were a student of maybe any characteristics or work ethics or um, just, I'd be interested to, to hear, you know, as you've observed so many students that some looked good and didn't make it, some didn't look good and did make it, and some looked good and made it. <laughs> common principles or what, what you think um, are, are things that help people who are maybe, you know, starting from a lower down the totem pole and to actually make it? Yes. 
Um, and I think fundamentally the people that are most successful uh, have a capacity for understanding that a fulfilling life is a life that's committed to continuous learning and understanding and recognizing that failure is an, is an inevitable part of a successful life. And it's how you respond to failure uh, that allows you to pick pieces up and see things in different ways and create value in ways that you might not have recognized without that kind of failure or, or uh, confronting difficult challenges in life. I think that uh, successful people, and I'm not going to define that in any way other than people that would look back on a life well lived and say, I've done the best I can with the resources and opportunities that have been given to me. Those are the people that have this commitment to continuous learning and and they also have a, an element of uh, human connection to them. So maybe they are financially very successful. Um, uh, one in particular, uh, a student I had by the name of Brady Murray, who has gone on to a very successful career and uh, started an organization called Rods Racing that is uh, focused on finding adoption homes for uh, children with Down syndrome. And Brady was a student from Preston, Idaho, uh, came from a hardworking middle-class family, but had a vision for what he could do with himself and was willing to learn and apply his unique set of gifts and talents uh, in ways that allowed him to be very successful in his chosen career. But if you uh, watch Brady today, it's not the financial means as a goal in and of itself that motivate Brady, it's the fact that uh, financial success allows him to be more effective in uh, moderating the challenges that are confronted by those that are less fortunate among us. And I think that for me, Brady embodies that notion of living and learning and applying uh, principles uh, that help him be successful in his professional career. But uh, connecting with people in important ways that make a difference in others' lives. And so that may be a, a, a contextual frame for what I, I deem to be a successful uh, pathway is being committed to learn and to grow and to challenge one's core belief systems on a regular basis and apply the knowledge that one learns from interacting with others in ways that unleash their capacity to be more effective human beings. Mm. You know, as you were talking here, I, I just looked up this uh, rodsracing.org of his. Um, and uh, for being from the same town as Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> yeah. he, he's, uh, he's done some great things here with the, the Disney marathon and the Star Wars half marathon in the dark. Right. And like, sounds yeah. like he, you know, he's made some real progress here. It looks like the current one they're on right now, they've raised another half million for, um, but that's great to see those principles applied for the benefit of others. Um, you know, I, there's something you just said that was really interesting to me, this concept of regularly challenging our beliefs, you know, um, I, you know, our listeners know I'm a bit of a book nerd listening to one or two audiobooks a week. And, uh, one of the things that stood out a lot in the different um, genre that I've mostly read is this concept of how much more common it is for humans to spam filter out information that doesn't line up with their current worldview mm -hmm. rather than challenge their worldview. 
Um, and yet, as soon as you talk about that, I mean, it, it resonates with me that that would be something that would help people progress is, is to question whether, whether my worldview is the complete worldview, right? T- right? Talk more about that concept, if you would. Yeah. Let me talk about it in terms of some specifics, uh, just because I think that helps frame my own commitment to this, this ideal. So uh, at Utah State University, we had a faculty member by the name of Vernon Bueller. Uh, Vernon and his wife lived a very simple lifestyle. They were effective savers, and uh, they were able to uh, create an endowment to support student scholarships at Utah State. And I uh, managed that, uh, the uh, small part of the uh, earnings off of that endowment to support a program that I run in the Huntsman School called Bueller Leadership Scholars. It's really just a reading group. So we get together, eight students and myself, we each pick a book over the course of uh, 15 or 16 weeks semester, we'll read nine or 10 books. And uh, the books we read are drawn from a very eclectic view. So all kinds of things from, uh, you know, fantasy novels to philosophy, to history, to biography. And uh, what I find as a result of that experience is I myself am challenged to to uh, reevaluate the foundations of my own understanding of the world. But doing it in the context of an experience with nine other people, eight or nine other people, also creates a dynamic where we challenge each other because of what we're reading. And I think that what I have discovered is First off, without this book club, I probably wouldn't pick up nine new books uh, a semester. Uh, I definitely wouldn't pick up the books that we do read because the students choose things that are outside of my own narrow interests or my own understanding of where opportunities are to improve my understanding of the world. But uh, I find that there's something magical that takes place when human beings get together and and uh, read something that challenges their worldview and uh, forces them to uh, connect to the broader set of the human experience in ways that they wouldn't understand otherwise. So, for example, this semester, we're going to start off with Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's a book as an economist I should have read uh, 50 years ago, but I didn't. And uh, I've read, of course, lots of little pieces out of that book, but I've never sat down and read it cover to cover. Uh, published in 1756, I think. Uh, extraordinary, the depth of understanding that Adam Smith had about the human experience and our capacity for moral sentiment and caring for our fellow human beings. And I'm looking forward to the opportunity to have that conversation with uh, other students and challenge our understanding of what it means to really be connected to other human beings and how we respond to that uh, connectivity. So I find myself to be a a reader. Uh, When I teach classes, I always require students to read two or three books in addition to the textbook, because I think that without developing a strong reading habit, uh, it's difficult to create a situation where one is Continuous, continuously challenged in in uh, their understanding of the world. 
You know, it's interesting as you talk about that. I um I had the chance, um, friend of mine who we had a great episode on the show, Lindsay Hadley. She introduced me to one of the founders of a charity called uh, Invisible Children. They ran that big Coney, Coney 2012 campaign, if you remember mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, this guy, Bobby Bailey, he just said, hey, before we meet, though, what I'd really like to do is, uh, would you mind reading this book called Shantaram? I try to get everybody to read it before we talk because I feel like it really helps uh, let people experience poverty mm-hmm. vicariously. Yes. And I'm like... Okay, you know I'm a book guy. Then I get I get it. And it's 43 hours on Audible, right? Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, whoa, this is, this is a heavy one, right? Yeah. And that book completely changed my opinion. It's a, it's a fictional story about a heroin addict who bank robber who breaks out of prison in Australia and runs to the basically the ghetto in India, and all the stuff that happens and how uh, he ends up becoming like a doctor. Well, he gets robbed, and so he's like penniless in the slums in India. And he ends up like becoming a doctor for the little village. And it reads a little more like an autobiography, even though it's fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and those 40 hours legitimately changed me and maybe some of my judgmentalness about some of the crime that happens in those communities. Um, because it was, you know, those communities were so unfamiliar to me. But the way this book was written let you live it so fully that maybe some of my black and white thinking uh, gained some gained some shades of gray as mm-hmm. I gained familiarity with it. And uh, it's interesting how that, you know, a fiction book, I felt like legitimately changed me. Yeah, I find that to be the case as well. In the books that I read, I probably read a good mix of fiction uh, versus, say, biography or history or philosophy, um, and even, you know, a, a healthy smattering of books that probably be broadly defined as self-help kind of books or uh, leadership-focused books. And I find that uh, one of the great things about fiction is that it's easy to come to fiction without a strong set of biases. Mm. Right? So I, I come to, for example, uh, a book on Thomas Jefferson or a book on Abraham Lincoln with all kinds of preconceived ideas of what I think about their life experience, because it's been a a part of a narrative that's been um, embedded in conversations with other people. But if I come to a fiction book, I'm forced to come to it, you know, clean without any sort of preconceived ideas. And I'm able to respond to the characters, I think, in a, in a more, um, accepting way. Mm-hmm. I'm, willing, I'm willing to look at fictional characters as reflecting essential human characteristics without being critical of those. Uh, and I find that uh, oftentimes in our book discussions, uh, when we're talking about fiction, it creates a much deeper level of introspection about who I am and how I interact with other human beings than I get out of other things. Um, yeah. Not that not that all of the other books aren't important contributors, but uh, as unique. Yeah, I think as I mentioned to you uh, before, uh, one of the books that had a profound impact on me, and it's you know when I tell this to colleagues, they consider it a bit uh, sophomoric and silly, but uh, leadership and self-deception, which is really <laughs> a very fictional narrative, uh, very simple in its structure, and yet very profound 
uh, in its influence on me. And part of that was a, the contextual framing, right? Which I also think is important. I was at a, I, I was having a set of life experiences where the message in that book resonated with me in a very clear uh, way. And I find that true with, uh, you know, fictional books in general, that depending upon my ability to extend the narrative to what's really happening to me, it has an element of uh, timeliness to it that I find really useful. Yeah. You know, um, it is interesting, those books that can you almost get to live it through their eyes for a bit Mm -hmm. because you get to suspend the belief, right? I'm thinking about not only the Greg Roberts book, Shantaram, as you talked about, but like Stephen Pesevich, any of his like ancient war novels, right? Or uh, Irving Stone, his Michelangelo book, The Agony and the Ecstasy, you know, Mm -hmm. those ones are really like that for me. Um, Yeah. Well, listen, I think we should cut this off for part one and uh, tomorrow tune back in. We'll be talking with Chris, um, about something I think is pretty cool. He and his associate director, Eden Jones, at the Partners in Business, they're doing something for students that not all universities do in the way that uh, you guys are getting exposure with real-world business people and the chance to interact and and get that one-on-one with some of the thought leaders. So thanks for making time, and tune back in for the next part two with Chris Fawson. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.